Let's do what we uh, did at the top of the hour. I'm going to say, He has risen, and I want you to respond. He has risen indeed. He has risen. Amen. We're going to affirm this truth all morning, and I want you to open your Bibles at this time to one of the best texts, I think, to do this from in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is Paul's treatment on the resurrection, and I think it's one of the clearest places in the Bible that affirms that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and what that should particularly mean to you. You know, our eternal destiny hangs in the balance of whether or not we believe one single truth, and that is that Jesus Christ, when he died, he didn't stay dead in the grave, but on the third day, he rose again. And the Bible affirms in a comprehensive way that the Father, his power raised Jesus from the dead, the Son, he raised himself from the dead, and the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead the dead. It's a very significant truth. Romans 10.9 says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, that he's master, and that we believe in our hearts that Jesus was raised from the dead, we shall be saved. So it's a very significant truth for us to understand. It's a big deal truth to understand. And that's why I'm so glad that sort of the masses come to celebrate this, because we need to be convinced of this truth to be saved. Now, if you've been in the church for any period of time, coming on Resurrection Sundays or to Bible conferences or Bible camps or just in general coming to church, you've heard sermons on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And perhaps you've heard uh, preachers sort of take this approach where they say, listen, if you were to go to Muhammad's tomb or Confucius's tomb, if you could find that, if you could sort of find Gandhi's grave, if you could find where Alexander the Great was buried, or if you could find where, you know, anyone like uh, King Tut, if you could find his tomb, if you could find Stalin's tomb or, or Joseph Smith's tomb or grave. And if you went there, you would find their remains. You'd find, you know, some sort of sarcophagus or remains or bones. And, and if, by contrast, you went to Jerusalem and you went and sought out Jesus' tomb, perhaps the garden tomb or the, where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is in Jerusalem, where it said that Jesus was buried. If you went in there, you wouldn't find any remains because Jesus has risen from the dead. Who's heard a sermon like that before? I'm sure that many of you have. And, you know, it's inspiring to us at some level because we know the gospel story. We know the story indeed from Scripture that Jesus has risen from the dead and that if we could actually find for sure his tomb, he's not there. But in our heart of hearts, I wonder if you're like me and if you've heard those sermons where they're sort of comparing, you know, people who've been worshipped in this life, almost, you know, sort of made into icons or deities or godlike people, and, and they compare, you know, their tombs where, where they would still be found compared to Christ's tomb where he's gone. I wonder if you're in your heart of hearts, you've thought to yourself, you know, this argument kind of breaks down just a little bit. 
it's not completely airtight because if I were to go to a tomb and look in there, perhaps there was some decomposition where the bones have kind of disintegrated or, or perhaps certain graves have been robbed. And so I might find an empty tomb if I were to look in those places where these world leaders were buried. And if I compare that to a, a tomb where Jesus is not, then, you know, you're kind of in the same situation. Well, I bring this up to say this. It's so important for you to understand that Jesus has risen from the dead on a heart level. You need to understand that Jesus rose from the dead by faith. You know, there are all kinds of evidences and arguments that people make on documentary, you know, channels and things like that, different episodes that you could watch about why Jesus um, rose from the dead or why Christianity is the best choice religion for you to put, you know, for you to hang your hat on or for you to invest in or invest your life in over against the other religions. But really the essence of believing that Jesus rose from the dead and believing in a way that saves you is to do it by faith is to believe from the scripture that Jesus rose from the dead and to believe in a way that, watch this, you are convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt. You you are ready to stake your life on the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And only when you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and you believe it by faith at that level will your life change. When you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, in a saving way by faith, your eternity is transformed. But if you just believe it sort of superficially because you heard it all your life in Sunday school or read it in a storybook or even read it from scripture in a superficial way and it's just an inspiring story to you or something that you celebrate like you celebrate at Christmas, then that is not saving faith. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he's driving this point home because the church needs to be inspired to take a step and go deeper in being convinced that Jesus Christ has raised from the dead. And that's where I want to take you this morning. I want you to be convinced not just sort of inspired that it was a great story that this man gave his life and he died and then he wasn't there anymore and I've sort of heard that story over and over again and it sort of inspires you, but to take it a level deeper, I want your faith to go to the next level where you are convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and that means something to you every day of your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be transformed. That's what it means to be sealed because you know Jesus rose. And watch this. You know that you too will rise like he did and forever be set and sealed for eternity where you will experience no more suffering, no more sickness, no more sin, no more death, and no more Satan. Where Jesus rose, you're convinced. And guess what? You're not only convinced that he did that, but you're convinced that you're going to be there with him in the same way, experiencing resurrection life. If you'd experience it now, before you get there, you've got to be convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt. Not just sold that the story makes logical sense. Not just convinced that, hey, this compared to the other religions holds more water or has more evidences to back it up. 
That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about going in on a heart level by faith. And so I want us to sort of dive into this text this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12. This is uh, Paul's arguments where he wants the church to be certain that Jesus was raised from the dead. He gives two arguments here. Let's just sort of unpack these together, beginning at verse 12. The first argument is Paul argues for what is lost if Christ has not been raised. What fragments, what sort of unravels if Jesus was not raised from the dead? This is the first argument. Let me give you a little bit of a prelude to this, just in defining resurrection. Resurrection is different than someone being resuscitated. The idea that someone was, you know, sort of almost dead, and then they sort of came back um, to life uh, resuscitated. Resurrection is completely different than that. It's superior to that. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was never going to die again. When we as Christians experience our resurrection and we are fit with the new body, we will never die again. That's resurrection. And actually, uh, theologians will distinguish uh, Jesus' resurrection from Lazarus' resurrection. Remember when Jesus called Lazarus from his tomb? He was all the way dead, but he was resurrected in a little different way than Jesus was resurrected because Lazarus was going to die again. So some people say he was really kind of resuscitated, resurrected. But Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he would never die again. And that's our hope too. The resurrection is where we are sealed for worshiping God forever in heaven. Resurrected, raised with Christ. And that's our hope. Jesus was raised physically, bodily, to experience all the full sensory blessing of glory. He, he showed after he was raised that he could eat. He ate fish, literally. His, his scars that were in his hands from being crucified and in his feet were still present because he was raised physically. And we are going to experience that same physical resurrection, and that is our hope. Well, in this context, the Christians back then were being slain left and right. They were being killed. They were being fed to wild beasts. If you were to look down in verses 29 and following, um, there's a testimony of death that was going on in the church. And the church was really growing discouraged. And they were beginning to sort of lose heart about the truthfulness of the resurrection. And they were just almost saying, well, you know, we're here in this life and we're doing the church thing, but people are dying off, they're getting killed. And so we're sort of forgetting about the whole idea that we're going to be raised for all of eternity after we die. Look at what Paul says in verse 29. He says, people were being baptized on behalf of the dead. That literally means that that so many people were dying that when other people, new Christians, would be baptized, they were expecting that they were going to die as well. It was kind of like a martyr's pool where they said, you know, okay, I'm going I'm to go public with my faith, and that might mean that I'm going to have my head chopped off. I know Christians like that even today who serve in China. I know a believer who was a colleague of mine in seminary who who now has moved his family there full time and he's sort of putting his life on the line on the mission field in China. And, And he could die for the faith and that was the atmosphere here. Look, Paul said in verse 31, I die every day. It's the idea that that he, he had a crosshairs on his back where people knew he was a marked man and he could die any day. 
He said, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. I don't necessarily think he went into the arena with, with the lions because typically Christians didn't come out of that arena. But it was as if he would literally be under that kind of danger atmosphere. And, and perhaps the wild beasts were just people attacking him personally. He says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, verse 32. And then he says, bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, look, you guys in this atmosphere, this wartime atmosphere, are forgetting something. And you're listening to people who are denying the resurrection. People are bad company to you because they're saying it's not worth it. They're, they're saying, look, why are you putting your life in jeopardy and your family's lives in jeopardy for this when you're going to die for it? And Paul's argument is, look, the resurrection is worth it. And so he, first of all, makes an argument that is called a reductio ad absurdum. It's the idea that he argues for a point that's absurd to prove the other point. That's the idea. You, you sort of set up a straw man so you can knock it down. He wants people to, re, to run to the reverse logic. And he's saying, look, what you're doing is you're saying that you believe as a church, you believe that Jesus historically rose from the dead, but at the same time, you're thinking that you're not going to be raised from the dead also. And that's absurd. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I, I'm staking my eternal destiny on the fact that Christ was bodily raised from the dead, but I'm also kind of doubting the fact that I'm going to be bodily raised from the dead. I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm doing the church thing, and I'm believing in the gospel that happened way back when, but it, it doesn't carry future for me. It, it do, it's not personal to me anymore, and I don't have the confidence that if my head was cut off or if I was a martyr for the faith, that I'm going to experience life that's better than this life. I, I'm sort of forgetting about all of that. And he, Paul's saying, look, that's absurd. You can't have it both ways. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead bodily, then guess what? Brothers, sisters, it's all worth it because you too are going to be raised bodily. You're going to eat fish. You're going to eat salmon in heaven. You're going to eat halibut in heaven. You're going to, you're going to eat broiled fish. You're going to enjoy the, the, the lamb supper. You know, you're going to enjoy Passover like you never thought that you could enjoy it, celebrating in glory forever. That's what the resurrection means. That's what he's driving at here. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you do that? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. I'm saying you can't have it both ways. If you don't believe you're going to be raised from the dead one day, then don't say you believe Jesus literally rose from the dead. Verse 14, this is our first point. If, if you don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead, what's lost? Well, the whole message is really untrue. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look, I mean, all, that, all the missionaries did, all that Paul did was preach. And he's saying, look, if, if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead literally, then what we're doing when we teach you this message, it's all just empty. It's all nonsense. I mean, the, the main method of the missionary is preaching. And he's saying, look, all of that activity, all of that time teaching the word of God, all that tent making, which set me up to be able to teach you, all that's a sham if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. 
The word for preaching is kerux. It's talking about the function of preaching and actually the, the message itself. It's all just mockery. It's all just a fraud if Jesus didn't raise from the dead bodily. It's all just a, a fake out. And not only that, look at verse 14 again. Not only is the, the, the preaching ministry vain, but the fact that they believed in this message is in vain. Say, look, we preached to you. We taught you the word of God. That was empty. And guess what that means? That means what you believed, what you've come into as the church, that's all just empty as well. It's all a big hoax. It's all a big sham if you start to undo the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything rests on this. Secondly, the missionaries were unsafe if Jesus did not raise from the dead. Look at this, verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Stop there. Saying, look, if, uh, if we don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead and we don't believe that we're going to rise from the dead and people are being killed for this, then we as missionaries have no integrity. We've got no character. We're misrepresenting God because our message is simply this. Jesus died on the cross and God the Father accepted that sacrifice and rose him from the dead. So if you're undoing our message, then you're really undoing our integrity as well because we're staking our eternal destiny on the fact that God the Father rose Jesus from the dead that his sacrifice was acceptable for our sins. So we're misrepresenting things. We're, we're messing up here if we don't believe in the resurrection. Look at this, verse 15. Again, you can't have it both ways. Whom, Jesus whom, he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So if people aren't raised, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then people will not be raised. It's all hopeless. It's all sort of meaningless because these things go together they do so the message was untrue and then the missionaries they weren't safe they weren't trustworthy it was all vain and then thirdly the mediator was unsuccessful that's verses 16 and 17 the mediator being christ in other words what he did on dying on the cross did not succeed it says for if the dead are not raised not even christ has been raised and if christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins the dead aren't raised then guess what if these people who've died who've fallen asleep if they're not also you know sealed for eternity then you're right jesus himself never raised from the dead god just left him there and we're just hopeless. And, and your faith is futile. It's just worthless. It's not worth it. And then lastly, verses 18 and 19, the mission was a failure. The message was untrue. The missionaries were unsafe. The mediator was unsuccessful. It's as if Jesus failed. It's all sort of a worthless sham. And then the mission was a failure, verses 18 and 19. Then arose also, then those also, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Literally, they're in a state of perishing. Those who have died, they're not only not gonna enjoy heaven, but because of their sins, people who've died, they're experiencing hell and destruction and they've perished. They're in a state of perishing. 
It says, if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Everything's unsuccessful. The mission failed if Christ didn't rise from the dead. Now, let me just take you, look at verse 19, take you back to that verse where it says, we are of all people most to be pitied. What he's saying is, look, if your hope is just in church, in this life, to sort of do the Christian thing, you know, you kind of claim Christ. You say, out of all the religions, this one makes the most sense. And I heard, you know, good Bible stories growing up. I, I went to vacation Bible school and heard the story. And it's sort of this, this thing that I do. And other people can do their own religions, but I choose this one. And, you know, whether or not it works out or not, I'm not really convinced for sure. He says that kind of superficial faith is one that is pitiful. It's, it's something that if it's really not a big deal, if it's not something we're convinced of as totally true, then we should be pitied. Because there's a huge sacrifice and a huge cost to being a Christian. And if it's just a maybe religion, then what are we doing? We're wasting our time. But he flips this thing on its head in a hurry in verse 20. And right here, this is Paul's second argument where he's saying not only, you know, what's lost if Christ was not raised, but now he argues for what is gained since Christ, in fact, has been raised. This picks up in verse 20. And this is where Paul, as an apostle, is a great example of what living faith looks like. Instead of explaining at this point where faith comes from, he models it for us and shows what's gained because we have indeed confidence that Christ has risen from the dead. Let me show you this in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Do you believe that? Christ has been raised from the dead. You know why we believe it? Because we have the same faith Paul had. We know it. We're convinced. We're sure, we're certain, we, we stake our eternity on it. We experience God and Christ because we know that he rose from the dead. That's what Paul is doing here. He's modeling genuine faith. And all of the points that I just described that are the unraveling of the church, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, I'm turning them over on their head as Paul did. And showing that all of these points do stand up. Look, the, if Christ, and since Christ, in fact, has been raised, verse 20, we find that the message indeed was true. Look at this. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The message is true. It's certain. It's sure. And in fact, not only is the message true, all of the preaching, all of the content of preaching is true. But at the end of verse 20, the missionaries are indeed safe. Look at this. It says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ was raised from the dead, and you know what he is? He's the first fruit of resurrection to us. You know why you know that you're going to be raised one day at the last day and glorified and have no more sin, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death, no more demons, no more devil? You know why? Because Jesus did it first. He's the first fruits. 
it's hearkening back to the ceremonial um, sheaf offering where when the harvest was coming, they would offer this little bit of a down payment bit of the harvest, the sheaf, and they would offer that and say, listen, because of this offering, the whole harvest is coming. Sort of to Alaskanize this, let me just say it this way. It's kind of a, a forced analogy, but, you know, we sort of beat the record and had the snowfall yesterday, you know. We really wanted that, right? But we wanted that record badly, but right now the sun is shining, and it's almost this sort of sunshine down payment that we know that, in fact, spring is coming, right? And we're excited about that, and we enjoy God's creation because the, the seed form of that is happening now. Well, that's the same idea here. Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection, and guess what? We know we're also going to be raised. It's exciting. You don't want to just know the resurrection as an intellectual fact, as part of a historic story. You want to know it in terms of being convinced. That's what it means to enter in at this level. The message was true, and the missionaries are safe. What I mean by that in verse 20 is that those who have fallen asleep, the missionaries who preached the gospel and who were killed for it were safe. They had authentic integrity, and they're safe in heaven, kept for resurrection. They indeed were safe. They were the real thing. And then thirdly, the mediator was successful. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 21, the mediator, Christ, was successful. Adam, who's compared to Christ, Adam, who was in the Garden of Eden, sinned and sort of contaminated the world and mankind with his sin. It covers everyone being born in sin. And so death came from sin. There was no death before that sin, and then death was everywhere, and it was propagated. And then there was an intervention with the second man, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, who was born without sin, who could die as the mediator, the bridge between sinful fallen man condemned to hell. He's the bridge so that you can get to heaven. He's the mediator. And guess what? The gospel worked. The plan that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit all in community agreed upon for Jesus the Son to leave the glories of heaven and come down to earth to live and experience the external effects of sin on himself and to take all the sins of the world onto himself on the cross for him to die for that sin so that believers could be expiated or cleansed and to be buried and rise again, it worked. That mediation plan worked. It wasn't a mission that failed. It was a mission accomplished. And that's our next point in verses 22 through 28. The mission was accomplished. This is what Paul is just exploding over, modeling that we believe Jesus rose from the dead because he in fact did, and the mission was accomplished. Look at verse 22. 22 through 28 is amazing because these verses show that once Jesus rose from the dead, it started a mission. It started a train that was going to run at full speed all the way into eternity. It's this sort of inexorable mission that began when Christ rose and is completed in glory. Look at this. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
all Christians will be made alive. Jesus won. And then verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When Jesus comes back, we're all going to be raised and sealed for eternity in resurrection. Verse 24, now he begins to talk about things that I don't have time to completely unpackage for us, but really he's taking us into the glories of heaven at this point because he's saying, look, the resurrection isn't just about sealing you for eternity. It's about the glory of God. And he's going to begin to display how Christ conquers all of his spiritual enemies, the demons, the devil, the enemies. They're all placed under his feet like a footstool. And how God the Father is going to coronate Christ. And then Christ, in the relationship of the Trinity, turns it around and throws his crown at the Father and says, says, I am bowing in submission to you. And they are submitting to each other in eternal, inter-Trinitarian love. Look at this. Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. This is Christ giving all the glory of his victory to the Father. And then it says, for he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. This is where the Father puts all of the victory at the Lord's feet, the Lord Jesus' feet. It says, when all things are subjected, uh, I'm sorry, verse 27, he puts all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, verse 27, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is ex accepted who put all things in subjection under him. God the Father accepted the Son's perfect sacrifice, and that's vindicated in resurrection. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. It's one God, and it's a love fest within the Trinity, where each are giving glory, mirror imaging glory back and forth to each other for all of eternity because Jesus won the victory over all the enemies. So the message was true. The missionaries indeed are safe. The mediator was successful and the mission was accomplished. Now, I want to get a little bit more personal into your lives for a second because where we began is where I want us to end, and it's with the challenge that you have to embrace the fact that Jesus indeed rose from the dead, and you have to embrace it by faith to be one of his. And when you embrace the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and it's personal, and it's life to you, that's when your life will be transformed. That's when the depression will lift. That's when the fears and anxieties will calm. That's when your conscience will quiet. When you are convinced at a deep level that Jesus rose from the dead. You may have weakened faith and still be one of his, but I want you to be strengthened in your faith. And it comes by one simple truth, embracing one simple truth, and that is that Jesus rose from the dead. It's a, it's a comprehensive truth that, that all of Christianity hangs on. 
And I want to get you there this morning. And the way to get there is to see how Paul got there. Because in verse 20, he doesn't explain why he's convinced. He's not pointing out evidences. He's not saying, okay, you know, I saw this great TV show, or, you know, I was online, or I had this great conversation, and now I'm, you know, buoyed up and convinced. No, there's something that's firing his faith in verse 20. And I want to show you that it begins back at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. Paul in verse 1 is defining you can see it, the gospel. He says, it's the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Now, here's how he defines the gospel. Look at this in verse 3. This is the key to firing up and staying fired about the resurrection. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, here it is, in accordance with the scriptures. Why did Paul believe that Christ died? I mean, Paul, we don't know if he was there to visibly witness that Jesus died. We also know that Jesus met with Paul personally on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 8. We understand that. But what is he resting in here? What's firing him? What, what, is, what is convincing him that Jesus died? He knows it because the Bible says so. Now look at verse 5 or 4. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Here it is, in accordance with the scriptures. This is a theme that, that comes over and over again in the New Testament. The graphe, the scriptures. It's the word of the living God that goes into our hearts that the Spirit takes and emblazons onto our souls where we know that we know that we know we're convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt we're willing to lay our lives on the line for the truth of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and the Bible tells us that that is true. That's what convinces us. Now look, he's going to go on and talk about how, how Jesus appeared in verse 6 to Peter, or verse 5 to Cephas, or Peter, then the 12, then to the 500, then to James, verse 7, the half-brother of Jesus, and then even to him personally, and, personally, and that's the vision of Christ that he saw in Acts 8. All of that happened, but that's not where he's fired up in faith. That's not what's convincing him that Jesus rose from the dead. What convinces him is the scripture. It's the word of God. And you know what? We have the same word of God to convince us. We aren't guaranteed that we're going to see a vision of Christ this side of eternity. We're not ever going to see, you know, Christ walk around and address the 500 like this. That's not what convinced Paul, and it's not what is supposed to convince us. Not visions, not signs, not wonders. It's the Word of God at root and foundation that enlivens our hearts, where the Spirit of God says, yes and amen, this is true. And so many people I've heard time and time again who've come to faith in Christ, you know how they do it? Well, they're just sort of in a crisis of their own lives and they don't have any other way to turn or anywhere to go and they grab a Bible off their shelf and they start reading the scripture and all of a sudden they go, wow, this is true. I mean, personally, I was raised in the Christian church and a Christian home and I knew the story that Jesus was raised from the dead and I was still going to hell. That's where I was. I had not yet bowed the knee, confessed Jesus as Lord, believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. Why? 
because the Spirit of God had not yet activated the Word of God in my heart yet. And when he did that, I couldn't get enough of the Bible. Many of you know, I, I, I've said this in men's group, I, I was not a reader. I didn't read very much at all. I could barely, like, you know, sort of be kept by the comics on Sunday morning. I mean, I just really was not a reader, but suddenly... When I was saved, I could not get enough of the scripture because this was worth it to me. And so all I do now for a living is read. I read all the time. I read books and books and sit and study, right? Write like a term paper every week, you know, to present. I would not want to do that if I didn't believe in the resurrection. If I didn't believe that there's something greater at stake in the world, and that is that the souls of men would be saved from eternal damnation by this one truth that we know for certain is true, that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is what Paul, he appeals to, Scripture. He's saying, look, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they document that, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. The Old Testament itself documents that this matters. And in, in verses 24 and following, I just want to show you this, chapter 15, 24, he's quoting Daniel chapter 7 about God conquering and Christ the Son of Man coming in the clouds and this vision of him conquering and taking dominion over all the kingdoms of the world. You can look at it later, verses 13 and 14 and 27, that the Son of Man is the conquering king. And that's what he's talking about and alluding to where death is destroyed. Psalm 110.1 is where, where the psalmist talks about the enemies of God being under his feet like a footstool. And that's what Paul is picking up on. It's all because Scripture fired Paul's faith up to believe like this. It's what made him like a madman for the gospel. You know, there's so many things that perhaps you go, man, I would, I would never think that I would do this or that. But once you get saved and the fire burns in your heart for Christ and you know that Jesus is Lord, you'll do anything for him. I never used to stand up and give public speeches and, and talk openly and transparently and boldly about anything. But I'm a new creation in Christ, and some of you are probably called to be teachers and are doing things that you never thought you could do. And perhaps you need to be called to serve in ways that you never thought you could serve. I mean, why do we give our money? Why do we give our time? Why do we give, um, give away, you know, family time? Why do we do that? Because we know that we have come in contact with the pearl of great price, and he's the treasure that's more valuable than anything the world can offer, and Christ is the one true God, and he's worth it. He's raised from the dead. The scripture's what does this to our hearts. Let me show you this in one other place, actually from the ministry of Jesus Christ himself, Luke 24. This is how Jesus evangelized people. He did it with the word of God, the graphe, the scripture. Look at this. Uh, it's the story that we began our hour with, the reading of God's word. Luke 24, the two that were on the road to Emmaus, we, one of them is unnamed and the other is Cleopas. And these are two believers, two disciples that were with Christ. They saw his miracles. They heard his teachings. But they're sad and depressed at this point because they had put all their eggs in one basket, and that was that Jesus Christ was going to redeem Israel. And probably they thought Jesus Christ was going to come as this warrior king and overthrow the Roman tyranny and government that was oppressing Israel. And so when Jesus all of a sudden was crucified by the Roman guards 
And then nothing happened after that. They were pretty down and depressed. And so they're talking about this on a seven-mile hike into a village called Emmaus, verse 13. And they're talking together. They're having sort of Christian fellowship together, right? And they're having a conversation, as verse 17 says. But they're depressed. And verse 15 says, while they were talking and discussing together, something happened. Jesus himself, look at this personal entrance of Christ. Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, drew near and went with them. At their lowest moment, Jesus Christ shows up and enters into their conversation. You know why he does this? Because he wants them to be convinced in a life-transforming way that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so he shows up. Now look what happened. At this point, verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. There was still sort of some fog over them spiritually where it wasn't time for them to get it yet. But it said that Jesus said to them, verse 17, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there there in these days? Now this is kind of some serious humor here. I know we have sort of a a weighty message, but let's just sort of lift up, you know, out of the the depths for a second. Can you believe this? This is the Son of Man, uh, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the one that made Cleopas and designed him to be exactly how he is, and the other disciple, and they're going, look, hey man, we don't know who you are, but how is it that you don't know what's just happened? I mean, have you not been on Twitter or Facebook or, you know, where has your head been? You know, have you not seen the newspapers? You know, is your cell phone not working? How do you not know that, that Jesus, the Messiah, who did all these miracles? I mean, and they were with him, so they're just totally out of it, not recognizing him. I don't totally understand that dynamic, but they don't get it because Jesus resurrected is recognizable, but they're not getting it. They're just completely ignoring who's standing in front of them. And they're saying, how is it that you don't know what's happened. And Jesus, he sort of milks this. Look at verse 19. He said to them, what things? What things? You know, he wants them just to lay out the story. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. In other words, maybe they had an inkling that on the third day, he was going to come back or something was going to happen. But their hopes at this point are completely dashed. They are royally bummed out that the plan did not work. The mission was not accomplished and all is lost. Look at this. This gets even more interesting. Verse 22. Moreover, some women, this would be Mary and the others, of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now look at this. These are guys who were with Christ, who expected something would happen, who were amazed because Mary and some women said, hey, check out the tomb. We went there and he's not there. And we actually saw angels that confirmed this and they're just kind of blowing it off. 
Again, it's the idea of just looking at evidences, you know, like empty tombs and sort of tomb shopping and saying, look, you know, uh, Maybe, maybe Jesus isn't there, and, and so that's how I'm going to believe. Well, they were sort of trapped in this superficial um, idea of, well, I'm kind of amazed. I'm kind of excited somewhat about Jesus not being there, but I'm not fully convinced. I'm still sad. You see? You can't just believe on a superficial level, and that's kind of where they were at that point. They were just kind of amazed with Mary for a while about that he's not there and that there was maybe an angelic vision and, and this and that, but... But their hearts weren't gripped by the idea of the resurrection yet. And Jesus wants to expose that. And that's where a lot of people are in the church. I want to just lay that out there. A lot of people are right where these guys were, where they're kind of amazed. They're kind of inspired by the idea of Jesus not being in the tomb. But they haven't given all the way over. And that's what makes mission happen. That's what changes our lives when you understand this on a deeper level. How does Jesus get them there? Well, first of all, he starts with a rebuke. He doesn't really pull any punches. Verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What does he appeal to? Jesus, it's so interesting. In verse 27, he doesn't say, hey, guess what, guys? I'm the guy that was in the tomb. You're, you're standing in front of me. He doesn't appeal to himself and, and first say, just wake up. Look who's in front of you. I've risen from the dead. No, he goes to the scriptures. It says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That word interpret is the word hermeneutics or hermeneuo, and it's the idea of, of he is literally interpreting Genesis to Malachi himself. He's showing himself as the fulfillment to all of the law and all of the prophets, all the poetry, all the ceremony, all the sacrifices. It was all fulfilled in Christ, who is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Do we believe that? That's what he uses. He uses the Old Testament to convince these disciples that the resurrection is true, so that they are taken to a level of faith where they believe in their hearts that God rose from the dead. Look at this. So they drew near to the village to which, verse 28, they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. Jesus is saying, well, I'm going to go on now. You know, I've shown you this, you know, from the Old Testament, but I'm going. And they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. See, their hearts are starting to, to crank here. They're starting to burn in their hearts. So he went to stay with them. In verse 30, he was at a table with them. He took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. So they're having sort of this Passover, new covenant ceremony. And, and then verse 31, right at mealtime, their eyes were opened. God opens their hearts with the word of God and the spirit of God. It's what he does in every believer's heart who is genuinely saved. That's the experience of every believer. The scripture and the spirit of God goes into the heart and your eyes open, the eyes of faith, and you go, you know what? Jesus is better than anything else this world has to offer. And that's what happened to them. As soon as they recognized him, he vanished from their sight. And that's probably so that they could say this and give credit where credit is due. And that is that the scripture transformed them. Look at this. 
They said to each other, did our hearts, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? If you want to be fired up about the resurrection, go to the scripture. The word of God is what convinces us that it's all true. They rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven. So they're going back to the disciples now. They're saying, hey, look, we're leaving Emmaus. We're going back. They ran back seven miles, grouped back up with the eleven. And they're saying, look, the Lord, look at this in verse 34, has risen indeed. They're convinced at this point. And he's appeared to Simon Peter, even the guy that denied him three times. I mean, they're convinced. They know it. And verse 35 says that he, Jesus, was known to them at this point. They were convinced. They were sure. Now, they're grouped together with these 11. And we might expect more from the 11 disciples. Judas Iscariot, he's probably off and taking his life at this point but the 11 we would think they'd be pretty excited to hear the news that Jesus has risen from the dead right because Jesus predicted he would rise from the dead but what are they doing verse 37 it says that they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit when Jesus came into the room Jesus in verse 36 said peace to you but they're startled and frightened and it says in verse 38 Jesus says why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your hearts and so in front of him, he began to eat fish, you know, he's eating broiled fish, and they're still disbelieving. He's showing them the wounds in his hands and his feet. But what changes things? What's the key that turns the crank in their hearts for them to be stoked, for them to be fired up? It's almost like this fire in front of me, this fire in your hearts that you know and you're convinced that Christ has risen. Look at verse 44. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of prophets and the, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand what? The scriptures. That's right. And he said to them, thus it is, let's say it together, it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And so once he's got them, these 11 and these two from, uh, you know, the two on the road to Emmaus, once he's got them and he's firing them up, he calls them to be on a mission. He says, look, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, all, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Guess what? The mission worked. They were captivated. They were captured in their hearts and fired up for mission. And he says, you are my witnesses of these things. And then promises that the Holy Spirit will come and enliven this mission to make a world impact to the glory of God. I want to ask you, And I pray that the Lord is speaking through me to your heart right now because this is where it all comes down to being one thing. Are you convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Is the scripture working that in your heart even right now? Perhaps you've believed it superficially. You've heard the story. You get inspired. You show up. But maybe the spirit of God is prompting you now and that same miracle that happened to the two on the road to Emmaus is happening now. And the clouds are parting and you are saying, I do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Yes and amen. 
And if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and are convinced that Jesus is your Lord, then you're saved. And that truth will carry you through this life, through any trials, any suffering, any difficulty, because Jesus will be better than anything good, bad, or ugly that the world throws at you. And my prayer, my heartfelt prayer, is that you would be convinced this day that Jesus has risen from the dead. Let's just, let me ask you two questions as we wind up. Does your heart burn with conviction that the scriptures concerning Jesus are irrefutably true? That's where it all starts. You got to believe this book is inspired and that the story from the scriptures is true. That it's truth. That's where it all begins. And then secondly, are you certain that you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? You know, if you're certain that you believe that, all of the gospel falls into place in your heart. First of all, if you believe Jesus has been raised, you're certain that Jesus is fully God and fully man. You say, I can't intellectually get my mind around that. Well, you don't have to because the scripture just testifies that that is true. Fully God, fully man. He's born of a virgin. You're certain that Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a perfect substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf. He took the wrath of God upon himself and appeased it for your sake. You, you deserved the spiritual electric chair condemnation, eternal destruction because of your sin. And Jesus took your place. He unlocked the door, took you out of the cell and said, I'm going instead. You got nothing to do with this. I'm taking your place because I love you. And he died in your place and gave you a reset button start. Push the reset button. Old things pass away. Everything became new. And he enlivened your heart to embrace it. And you're clean and pure in his sight and forgiven because of what he did on your behalf. He's your substitution. And his sacrifice was sufficient. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. Are you certain that God the Father accepted Christ's sacrifice on the cross? That's what it means that God rose Jesus from the dead. He accepted that on your behalf. And then, are you certain that Jesus is the only way for you to be saved from eternal destruction? Again, superficial faith will say, look, I've kind of weighed all the religions in the balance, and this is the best one. I've looked in all the tombs of the other world leaders and religious leaders, and they're either there or they're not. But you know what? This story is the story I'm going to jump in with. Sort of the American Christian religion. It's not enough. You got to be convinced when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but through me. You got to be convinced that that narrow path only through Jesus Christ is the way into heaven. And when God opens your eyes to see the living Christ as the Lord and master of the universe, nobody has to argue you into the kingdom. You know that Jesus is Lord and he's it he's your master you become certain that Jesus is the only way to avoid eternal destruction and you're certain that God commands you to repent believe and bow to him as Lord of your life you know in our culture and maybe even in our Alaskan culture submission is kind of hard for people there's sort of a, an air of independence and ruggedness in our atmosphere and we do survive, you know, some harsh winters uh, together and individually, don't we? However, before God, who's the creator of the winter that we just experienced, we know that he is the master. And our independent attitude becomes 
submission before the Lord of the universe. That's what happens when your eyes are opened. You see that you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, by your own strength, or by your own moral obedience. And you lay that all aside and you say, you know what, I'm a sinner that needs grace. And God gives it to you. That's what it means to become a Christian, to believe that Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead and confess him as Lord. Now, I'm just going to say this. Only when your heart, and it's on the screen, only when your heart burns with conviction, burns in this way, that these things are true, only when it's burning will your life change. Again, I'm not just trying to convince people with the Scripture to believe for the first time. I'm also trying to take your belief and your faith to a level deeper where you will burn Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all through the week and all through the year because you know and are convinced that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Are you convinced? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together in your word. Thank you that this is Resurrection Sunday, and it's a sort of a ceremonial time in our calendar year to commemorate that Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm so glad that we have this because it is the one single truth on which all truth hangs Because Jesus, you either rose from the dead or it's all a big sham and we know better. We are convinced from Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That he is the one true God worthy of our allegiance, submission, and praise. And we thank you, God, that because you are risen, that we have hope. That all who have died in Christ will raise and that we too will not be held by death but we will raise as well and we will be raised to worship you for your honor and your glory and I pray that if anyone here does not yet know you that you would flip the switch in their hearts this morning that you would clear the fog that the clouds would part that illumination from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God would happen and that the Word of God as a seed would germinate and that the beginnings of saving faith would happen today. We love you, God, and we thank you that in Christ there is no condemnation and we are more than conquerors. So I pray that if anyone here needs to know you, that they would come to you now as you draw near to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.